Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Halloween is next Thursday, which means that most of the Halloweeny stuff is happening this weekend. And you you might arguably you might put into that category the Twilight Tours at the Campbell House Museum, uh, which are spruced up this year by the Morning Society of St. Louis. That's Morning with an O U. They study and recreate morning rituals from the past and will put their research to work tonight at the Campbell House when they reenact the 1879 wake of the man who lived there, the famed St. Louis fur trader Robert Campbell. So we are here with, I believe, the the complete membership of the Morning Society of St. Louis to learn more about what they're up to. It's a small but committed and busy group. Uh, We are here with Catherine Kazemchek, who, when not researching the Victorian era, works in the health insurance industry. John Avery is an avid historical researcher and historical reenactor and former former funeral director. Yes. And Edna Dieterle, who is an honest-to-goodness nurse, but tonight at the Campbell House Museum, she'll be showing off some low-tech tools of the trade from the past, like leeches. Edna, thanks for coming <laughs> in. Uh, Catherine, John, and Edna, thanks for coming in. And I do want to invite our listeners into this conversation. If you have a question or comment about this topic, give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us, talk at stlpublicradio.org. Send a pigeon, but the, it'll have to be a quick one because we're just here for about 25 minutes. Uh, Catherine, John, and Edna, thanks for coming to talk about this. So I know you got come at this from a deep interest in history and are, and are serious about your work. The Halloween tie-in, intentionally or not, uh, ends up making October a busy time for you, though, right? Is that right, John? Very much so, yes. Do you resist that connection to some extent? Uh, no, we seem, seem to just take on more and more every year. Okay. <laughs> Well, t- let's start first with what's going to actually happen tonight at the, at the Campbell House Museum. Um, Catherine, would you tell us what to expect? Um, yeah, they'll get a brief overview about the history of the Campbell House and the family. And then they'll have a guide that takes them to room to room where they'll experience different aspects of 19th century morning, um, including the wake, which will be the first thing that you see. But there'll be different exhibits all throughout the house about the time that they would be in mourning, the clothing that they would wear. Um, and then we go into, um, on the second floor, uh, medical treatments, death at home, um, all kinds of different aspects of um, what you would experience at that time oh, when someone died at home. All of that at, at the at the Campbell House? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's terrific. Uh, so you researched the, the funeral and wake of, of Robert Campbell specifically, Catherine? Um, actually, the Campbell House had all of that ready for us. So we didn't have to do that much research. He was a well-known person at the time. And so there's much information out there about his funeral. Edna, tell us about those leeches. <laughs> Everybody loves the leeches. Um, well, leeches were a common thing used back in the day to uh, release blood. They felt that that would help rid the body of illnesses. And so I do have leeches and talk about their uses. And they're used now in, in modern medicine for uh, amputations and skin grafts. So uh, they started using them back then, but we do use them today for methods that actually do work. Wait, are, are leeches making a comeback? I yeah. <laughs> I think in the medical field they are, yeah. How, how would one use a leech in 2019? And uh, 2019, uh, plastic surgeons use them if they're doing skin grafts, if, if it's not uh, attaching well, because a leech draws blood to the surface, so it's going to bring blood to that area. If it's an amputated finger or something, they attach a leech, it draws blood to the surface. But now it's done in a sanitary, antiseptic way, uh, not as in the 1860s when they would do them, and there was no antibiotics, no antiseptics, and often they people were overbled, which caused anemia and infection because they didn't wipe it off with an alcohol swab before they applied mm. the leech and things like that. So, yeah, so it didn't really work as well back then. We're having better luck with them nowadays. So some some enhanced knowledge of uh, 
microbiology and bacteria yes. combined with some old-fashioned sucking prowess <laughs> yes. actually performs a medical function. Yeah, because the leech is actually designed for that. Their saliva has an anticoagulant in it. It keeps the blood flowing, so they're totally designed for bleeding. Mm. And so you might, you'll have some on hand yes. tonight for visitors? there will be a jar of leeches there, yes. Okay. <laughs> that's the most gruesome part of our uh, tour. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. Um, we talk about the Mourning Society, M-O-U-R-N, um, studying the practices surrounding death of a previous age. Is there something morbid to that, John? There really isn't, particularly if you look at the historical uh, time. Uh, the uh, event when it would happen in the home, and most always did happen in the home, unless it was a the uh, event. Tremendous. The, uh, the event, the death, um, unless there was a, a terrible accident or something like that uh, outside of the home. Um, we try to be um, as factual as we can be about that. Uh, of course, I, being a, a retired funeral director, uh, that part of it is, is pretty easy for me uh, to be sure that what we do is, uh, is correct, period correct. So looking at it in the big picture, what was different about the way that the St. Louis Society, American Society, dealt with and engaged with death 150 years ago. Was there a job funeral director, for instance? There was for the undertaker. Uh, he would bring in uh, morning clothing, possibly, if the family needed it, um, material to cover the, the uh, mirrors and portraits, um, chairs, whatever the family might need at that time. And what about de dealing with the deceased? Wasn't that, I understood that was something that was handled more in the family. Yes. Um, it, into the 60s, uh, it certainly was. Into uh, the 1960s? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. We live in the 1800s, so it's, <laughs> <laughs> we know what we're talking about there. Um, when there was a death in the home, usually it would be in a bedroom, uh, and the body would be washed and, and uh, clothed and brought down to the parlor uh, when the, the coffin had arrived from the undertaker, cabinet maker, or uh, cabinet, cabinet, cabinet maker. There we go. Um, so it, it was in the home. You know, everything was done in the home. And how, how, how is that different from, from today? It's Little or nothing. Well, other than hospice, but that's the closest we can come today to uh, having a death mm -hmm. in the home. Uh, I mean, I, I think that nowadays uh, the, the surviving family is insulated as much as possible from the particulars of just how to deal with a body that has recently expired. Sure, sure. And that but wasn't necessarily all the always the case. No, uh, there was not a family that was not touched by uh, the death of a child or a youth or even an adult. Um, and it, was, it occurred in the home with the whole family there. Mm -hmm. And we kind of do a disservice this, now in not letting the family be a part of all of that ritual. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I know you're you're a researcher and a collector of, of artifact artifacts from the object uh, from the era. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of primary materials do you sift through uh, to to figure out how to put on a, a 1979 wake? Well, we we get objects that are authentic that are really from the period. Um, some of those are post mortem photography, which we'll have there tonight. Um, Pho photographs of of, of the deceased. The deceased, yes, which sounds creepy to us, but again, when you look at it in perspective, back then they didn't have lots of pictures of their children. So a baby or a child might die, you have no pictures of them. So of course you want a picture to remember mm. that child by. Um, so there's lots of surviving photos of, of there are. the dead people. There are. And if you look for them, you know, we find them in antique stores and boxes. When Catherine and I go antiquing, we'll sift through boxes and, oh, these are all alive. There's no dead ones. We're looking for <laughs> photographs of, of, because sometimes they get mixed in. And they are treasures. They were treasures to a family, and now they're just sitting in a box in an antique store. So I like to give them a home. And are you, when you 
walking into a store like that, are you upfront about what you're looking for? Does it no. does, does it hit people the wrong way sometimes? Yeah, we just kind of look uh, quietly. Okay. We don't tell people what we're in there for because a lot of people don't understand it. We don't. That's one thing too. We do it respectfully. That's one thing our group prides ourselves on is that we do it respectfully and historically. It's not you know we don't do the jumping out of coffins thing. We we are respectful of the deceased and mm. we're honoring their memory and we're showing people how they did it 150 years ago. What else do you have in your personal collection? I have hair work. Um, hair was another hair, hair work. Hair work. Uh, human hair that would make into jewelry, oh. rings, watch fobs, necklaces, earrings, which again sounds weird to us today, but most moms have a snip of their baby's first haircut taped in a baby book somewhere. The Victorians did the same thing. They just took it one step farther and would make it into jewelry pieces. Also big pictures, hair wreaths that look like flowers if you're not looking at them closely. So I also have some, some hair work items too. And Catherine, you're just a, a great student of the, of the era in general, right? Um, yeah, I do my best <laughs> to uh, try to get back to primary sources so that we're pulling material out of uh, things from the era. Um, so it's as realistic as possible. Are there good records in St. Louis for this era? Um, there are some in St. Louis. I would say a lot of mine, my research is online, too. So there's a lot of digital um, books available that are from that era and um, a lot of newspapers and things like that. There's all kinds of things. If you know what to look for, you can compile a lot of information. Yeah. What? Why the Victoria era? What, what interests you? I don't know. I've always been interested in the 19th century and just culture in general. I think mourning is interesting because everybody can relate to having a loss. Most people have had that in their life, and it makes people, I don't know, have more empathy for people in the past if they are experiencing that same thing. Hmm. Are there uh, myths about how people dealt with and encountered death in the in the 19th century that, that people these days have about the topic? Anything come to mind, John? There were a lot of uh, superstitions that would, and a few of them have remained with us. But uh, most of them, uh, now you just read in books. Superstitions at the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. What were some yeah. things people were very concerned with at the time that um, nowadays we wouldn't be? The individuals were were frightened, afraid that they would be buried alive, mm. and so the coffins uh, would be made uh, with some sort of uh, contraption. Not all of them, by any the, means. The but glass some onion. Of them were, Pardon? The glass onion, isn't that what they call it? A little window? Yes. A window out? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, having a um, rope tied to a bell outside of the, the grave. Oh. Uh, dead ringer. <laughs> that's, is it, that's where dead ringer comes yes. from? Yes. Uh -huh. uh -huh. There would be a rope up to a bell uh -huh. so that if you were stuck in there, you could ring it. Yeah. On the, in the hopes that someone would just by chance be walking through the cemetery to hear it, <laughs> which they probably weren't. Um, but there were a number of different kinds of contraptions. In fact, in fact there were over 100 that were patented. Um, and so this was... Con contraptions to, for the for, mistakenly yes, buried yes. person uh -huh. to alert someone. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and it, you know, it was a real concern. So those that could afford it would certainly buy coffins that had some sort of contraption uh, attached to it. And is that come out of just a more uncertain medical kind of environment that... Someone might be mistaken for deceased when they weren't? Well, actually, the f superstitions and the fear of death uh, goes back centuries. Um, in our country, back to the 1600s, um, there were rituals um, and uh, superstitions that many of the immigrants would bring from the old country. And so it was not, these were not just American, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, fears at all. Well, when you read letters from, from this time period and earlier, 
right at the beginning, there's often a, a careful cataloging of the health of everybody in the household, right? Mm-hmm. Rebecca had a fever in September, but thank God she's recovered. Sarah has a cough now. And um, you just get the idea that the preservation of health is so important because the idea of death and sickness was just a little more mysterious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these days, I think we, we sometimes think we have more control over it than we do, but a real sense of powerlessness Com- uh, than compared to now, I think, in the past 150 years or so. Yeah. And you were preserving the health of the whole family, too. They knew that once one person was ill, that there was a chance that everyone else was going to contract it. They didn't exactly know why, but that was understood at the time. Yeah. Then. So that was carefully monitored. If, and especially if you um, you know, had enough, if you were a wealthy family and you can afford medical treatment, um, you, know, you might seek that out at home. But um, sometimes that was worse for you than you know, your mother just taking care of you. (laughs) That was dangerous also. And if we're talking um, when Robert Campbell is being buried, that's 10 or 20 years after the Civil War when 2% of the American population was killed. Um, Was there just a a different interaction with with the idea and the specter of death in in this era compared to now? For sure. Um, It became more culturally important because everybody had experienced a loss. Like not you couldn't walk into another run into another person on the street who hadn't. Um, And even just not war deaths, but uh, there were epidemics after the war that were caused by overcrowding and things like that. So there were there was a cholera epidemic in St. Louis right after the war. Um, And I think it became it became a cultural touchstone at that time and it persisted for quite a while after. And it also became very commercially popular because, you know, this is America. So, you know, when people were interested in mourning, people came out with things that you could buy. And so that's where a lot of the things come from that we have now to show people are items that were made available to people because it was something that was happening at the time. What are some newly available mourning paraphernalia? Um, They, well, mourning jewelry became very popular. um, And the things that you would need to wear while you were in mourning became a little more structured. Um, So you would have to go to a specific uh, store uh, to buy the fabrics that you would need or the veils or handkerchiefs or there's lists of goods that they would sell at specific stores for mourning um, because so, uh, there was a company that would fill that role for you. So a mourning commercial industry is yes. something that was developing? In, in yeah, the- yeah. And that's where a lot of the items that you see now in museums and things that Edna and I collect, um, that's those were produced because um, it was a very popular thing that was going on at the time. Yeah. Well, we are talking with members of the Morning Society of St. Louis ahead of their event tonight at the Campbell House Museum, 140 years this month after the death of Robert Campbell, who was a, born in Ireland, a frontiersman, settled in St. Louis, fur trader, had a nice house, apparently, right? Mm-hmm. So when, Beautiful house, yeah. <laughs> yes. So when, a Cam- when Robert Campbell died, uh, a prominent citizen, he breathes his last at home. What, what, what happens next? Uh, it would be hoped uh, that the body could be held for three days, uh, emulating the three days Christ was in the tomb. Oh. Uh, depending on the weather, if it was a terribly humid uh, summer which and hot, which we often have, uh, the body might not last as long. Um, they did not have, Im- well, embalming. It started at the beginning of the Civil War in this country. Uh, but there were a lot of people that were very leery of it. Uh, even well into the 70s and 80s, uh, 1870s and 80s. Must have seemed um, quite gruesome as a new technology. Uh, it was. There was a lot of fear uh, as to what and why it was being done. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Lincoln uh, approved the first Union officer um, to be embalmed, 
And uh, that was the reason that embalming became popular, was to get the soldiers back to their home uh, after be they were being uh, oh. killed in the war. And so it became uh, a little more accepted, but it really wasn't until the 20th century that uh, it was a common practice. Embalming? Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, Robert Campbell would, would, be in, would be embalmed and then services at home? We don't know. Um, we have not run across that, and we're waiting for Catherine to come up with that information. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the weather, the inside of the house, would have to be somewhat cool. Uh, they would uh, not light a fire. They would close the drapes, keep it as cool in there as they could, and the body, they hoped, would last for the three days and then have the, the funeral at the end of the third days after the wake. Mm. John, let's talk about your collecting a bit. Um, I understand that you, you acquired a, a horse-drawn hearse some years ago and um, rehabilitated it? I did. Uh, it was my, my little baby. Um, I completely restored it. It was in a remarkably good condition, but I finished the restoration uh, and used it in parades and uh, first-person static uh, uh, experiences near the battlefield, Civil War battlefield. Um, how, how old is it? We The best we can come is it's the mid-60s, 1860s. Mid-1860s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I finally decided that it was time to give it a new home. So Bellefontaine Cemetery uh, purchased it, and uh, they have it and will be uh, refurbishing it again and hopefully using it for some of their burials. Would a hearse be something that would only be used for a, a wealthy, wealthy, by a wealthy family? No, uh-uh. Um, of course, some of the families, particularly in the country, uh, they might have just a, looks like a, buck a, a buckboard. Uh, in the city, they would have some type of, of uh, hearse. Uh, mine was, was considered probably a poor man's hearse. It didn't have glass, and it was shorter than most of the hearses, near, not nearly opulent uh, as the, the more uh, expensive ones and the, those people that could afford those, which would have been... Um, the the one that that we'll talk about tonight, um, but it's uh, it's quite an experience to own one. I, you think, well, it's another vehicle. Well, it's more than that. It's uh, you really have a, a a sense of what it must have been like uh, in the 1800s uh, to use a hearse like that and to process in a hearse like that, uh, which I have done uh, in the past. And uh, so it's horse it, horse drawn. Uh huh. Horse drawn. Yeah. Uh huh. Single horse. So it's it's quite a small one. You mentioned the Bell Fountain uh, Cemetery. Yes, that's where the the band got together, right? The the Morning Society of St. Louis, Edna. We uh, know each other before that. We were doing some events at uh, other places before, but then our group, as the Morning Society of St. Louis, came together there at Bellefontaine. They gave us the opportunity, and so we've been doing it for five, this is our fifth year. It's every first Saturday of October. We'll be, we do something there. Always a different topic. At the cemetery. Every year. At the, it's at the cemetery. So we have um, reenactors uh, in different locations doing educational bits, uh, talking about different things relating to that era. And then we do in the chapel there, we do an actual funeral uh, where we have a, a coffin and um, undertakers. And we carry the coffin out to the cemetery and do a graveside service and, and do as close to a burial as we can actually do. And it's uh, it's an interesting experience that we sell out every year, and it's uh, really educational. What do you and your audiences, your participants, get out of all this? What do you, what do you think? Why do you do this? 
satisfaction and, and to be able to share history with people to make it real for them. People look at pictures of people in the 1860s and, and just think they're flat images on a page or they those morbid Victorians. They were always obsessed with death. But when you do these things, you let people know why, that they were real people. They had real losses in their lives and they mourned and grieved just like we do now. It was just how they did it then. So it's, it's always fulfilling to educate people, uh, to let them see this and walk away saying, oh, I didn't know about that. I learned something today. Hmm. And we're actually out of time. That, that flew by. It's been great having you in here. Uh, I want to thank Catherine Kazemchek, John Avery, and Edna Dieterle, the Morning Society of St. Louis. Are there counterparts in other cities? No. You're trailblazers. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been great chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.